Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hello, my creative brothers and sisters. Sourdough here. And I want to tell you about some cool new things we got for you at NotRealArt.com. We just launched our artist education program where you can learn and grow your arts career. We call it the Not Real Art School. Not Real Art School features five free courses with top artists and business experts, all who spoke at our Creators Conference in 2019. Our free courses include important business topics for any artist, such as how to protect your art, how to market your art, how to license your art, and even how to pitch your ideas in Hollywood. Our Not Real Art School program also contains free career advice from top artists who tell you how they achieve success in their careers. These artists include Jorge Gutierrez, Logan Hicks, Julie B., and Human. Take advantage of this empowering content today. Just visit notrealart.com and click on the school link to get access to this valuable educational content. And the best part is, it's all free. Yes, free. So you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Visit notrealart.com today to learn this important business knowledge and grow your arts career. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My steam co-host, the one and only Man One, is on assignment today. So, yet again, you're stuck with me. But on today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by Aaron Yoshi. Aaron is just an amazing human being, incredible artist and is doing all she can to make positive change in this world. And she's endeavoring to embark upon a new campaign this year called The Land of We. And she's tackling climate change through her art and helping to drive conversations to reimagine a different kind of world where we live within our means and we live in a sustainable way. And we rethink the systems that we have that continue to exploit our planet and deplete our limited resources. So Aaron and I uh, had a great conversation. Aaron's someone I've respected for a long time. She's a friend. And when she was telling me about this project, I said, you know, well, we definitely wanted to support her. And so Not Real Art is going to help her promote her work and tell the story about this exciting project, The Land of We. Uh, Not Real Art will be a media sponsor on the project. But 
know, Aaron is badass. I mean, what can I say? I mean, there's not, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to overcomplicate it. I mean, she's an incredible artist, but she may be the only artist that I've ever met with an MBA. Stereotypically, artists are not really be very good at business or not enjoy business or not have those business skills or acumen to run a tight ship. But Aaron's actually came up through business and became an artist and she got her MBA. So she is a pro, a real pro when it comes to handling her business practice as well as her art practice. So we get into that a little bit, but really this project that she's working on as an important one. And, you know, for me personally, I wanted to support her just because I'm a, you know, well, A, I'm a parent and my kids are inheriting a shitty world that we have managed to uh, create. But also uh, I'm a big outdoor guy. I love camping. I love spending times in nature. And of course we are depleting our natural resources in our wild places. And so Aaron's project is a personal one for me. Uh, I think it's really important. So Anyway, you should definitely check Aaron out at AaronYoshi.com. That's E-R-I-N-Y-O-S-H-I. Again, E-R-I-N-Y-O-S-H-I, AaronYoshi.com. And be on the lookout for this project, The Land of We. It's going to go over several months. There'll be multiple murals and billboards and a lot of social media stuff. And, you know, chances are you're going to be seeing it. And, and when you do, please support her, follow her, repost her, like her, and DM her, and tell all of your you know, friends and followers and fans and from family about it, because this is an important project. And we don't have a whole lot of time to turn this ship around. We've done a pretty good job. Mankind, human beings have done a pretty good job of, you know, ripping this planet apart. And we got to figure out how to put it back together. And Aaron is on the forefront of that. So, Without further ado, let's get into this great conversation with the one and only Aaron Yoshi. Aaron Yoshi, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here today. Oh my God, it's an honor to have you. Are you a podcast aficionado? Do you like podcasts? I am. I'm a total podcast junkie. I actually am a fan of Not Real Art Podcasts. I've listened to a lot of yours. And um, yeah, I listen to all types. News, I really like true crime. That's like my thing. Like I can listen to it, but if I watch it, I get slightly scared because I think my visual imagination's too vivid. So I'll like dream about crazy things. So I really like to listen to them though. So true crimes is one of your favorite. What art podcasts do you listen to besides Not Real Art? You know, I listen to this one. It's like an art marketing podcast. Um, mm -hmm. I listened to one about that. And then I've also listened to a few just like by like trying to keep artists inspired and stuff. But mm -hmm. I, honestly, I listen to way more podcasts about all different types of stuff. Politics. Well, that's yeah. Yeah. No, that that's the blessing and the curse of podcasts because there are so many great ones out there. But there's so many podcasts out there. It's hard to find kind of the good ones. And one of the reasons I like to ask people about the podcast they listen to is to help spread the love a little bit because it, it's such a saturated market that oftentimes it, it becomes like, it's like that, that referral, right? From someone you trust. It's like, oh, okay, they, they're into it. Maybe I dig it too. Really? But yeah, those, those true crime ones are really popular. 
Yeah, Up and Vanished. I like that one. By Tenderfoot okay. TV. They're pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Right. I've been hooked. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been a guest on a podcast before? Yeah, once, but it you know, it was recorded in a studio. So actually no twice. One on Zoom and one in a studio. What was the one in the studio like? What was that? Was a pretty that sounds pretty professional. Like what was that about? It was pretty cool. They they actually are folks that do a lot of like sneaker stuff. So it was cool. They actually videotaped it and did like a they released the video version and then the the audio version. I only saw the video version. I haven't even heard the audio version, but I figured I was mm. there. I got the gist. <laughs> yeah, well, one of these days we want to introduce the visual uh, video element here as well. But right now we're sticking with the audio. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot easier. I mean, the video adds so much complexity totally. from a production standpoint. Totally. And this way, it's at least with the video, if it's online, like you can wear sweats underneath, you're all good. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but, you know, it's like if you got to be there in person, you have to get all ready and everything. It's totally different. <laughs> Bummer. Yeah, it's such a hassle. It's such a hassle. Yeah. So, well, I'm so grateful that we could get together and talk. We've been friends and, and for a long time, it seems like it. And, but I've been a fan of your work for way longer. And just respect the hell out of you. So I'm grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to come and play podcast with me today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a little intimidated, but, you know, I'm excited. You've had some good ones. There's some. There's well, thank some you. Thank you. Yeah, you know, we try to keep up in our game here and there, but... Today, we're, we're that much better because we have you, and I'm, I'm really grateful. You know, you've got so much going on, and so, you know, we've got a lot to, to talk about. But, I mean, you know, as an artist in this age of COVID, I mean, there's, you know, in terms of 2020, I mean, there's not much we can say that probably hasn't already been said when it comes to COVID in 2020. But, you know, in talking to artists, it's interesting to me to see how every artist, of course, is different, and they're experiencing the pandemic differently. And of course, you're no exception. I mean, how have you as an artist been dealing with 2020 in terms of your creative output and production and process? Are you able to, I mean, on one hand, you're a total pro, like you have to check the chaos at the door and meet your deadlines. Like, you know, that's what I always love about you because you know, Joe, I mean, you're a total pro in that regard, very responsible. But at the same time, it must be really hard to get out of bed some days like me. Like, how do you, and you're a mom on top of it. Yeah. So how yeah, are you well, doing? I don't get the choice of staying in bed anymore because I am a new mom. And so, you know, it's like baby's up, I'm up. So that definitely will keep you motivated besides the like, oh, I got to change the diaper. Somebody just threw up on me. I guess I'm up for the day, <laughs> um, you know. So that has been a huge help in like having hope during this time because I don't really have so much time to dwell in my own thoughts because I'm like changing diapers and running around being a mom and feeding and everything. And then in between it, like working and doing projects and meeting deadlines and like, there's like this myth that creatives, like you work when you're inspired. That's awesome. But if you're really producing, you got to work when you're inspired, when you're tired, when you're sick, if you don't feel good, like you just got to work. Like you got to, pull it out, get into that zone and pull it out. And even if you're not in that zone, you better fake it to pull it out to like get in there. So like the idea that like, oh, it's such a luxury. We do it when we're inspired. Like I wish that was the case, but sometimes you just got to do it. So yeah, I feel like I'll pull it out sometime. Maybe it'll happen at three in the morning, but it's going to come out. Yeah. I think Chuck Close said something about inspiration is for amateurs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is totally. so true. Right? I mean, it's like, listen, I mean, 99.9% .9 of us don't have the luxury of not going to work. 
Yeah. You know, like you got to get up and make the bacon. And, totally. and that's the same thing with go out to the shed, start chopping that wood, man. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. But, you know, I've actually learned ways to work with my brain because like I'm one of those rare kind of artists that has a super like business oriented side and a creative side. And so mm -hmm. I have to do them on separate days. And I've learned that about myself over the years. Yeah. So like I can't go from like answering hella emails and writing a grant to like I'm going to go paint for four hours like that doesn't right. really work with my brain. It can't shift that quickly. So like I'll set aside a day to like I won't answer any emails and I'll just be in the creative zone or I'll like answer emails and do the calls and everything on a different day that's kind of how i balance it it's not always such a perfect separation but i have found that that's worked for me by the way that's is so important i think to ponder because i mean it really is different muscles you know what i mean like it's two, oh, yeah. two different sets of muscles right being creative and then being sort of administrative um, yeah. And I think that's right. Like you can't, it's like two gears. Like you can't, if you're in one gear, like focus on that for yeah. a day and then shift totally. it the next day. Yeah. Totally. Cause it's like, yeah, you're just, I get exhausted too much. And then whatever I'm working on is like, it doesn't have the full like umph behind it. it doesn't have mm -hmm. that love feel to it. Well, also as a parent and I'm speaking from experience too, as a dad, but it's like, you've got to work when you have time to work. I mean, and oh, yeah. you've got to organize your life to deal with the kiddos and the family. And so like, you may not be able to work when you want, you've got to work when you can. Yeah. And that's a whole different mindset. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the good thing is like, I'm a night owl. I've always been a night owl. So like once baby goes down, that's kind of my time to like, get on whatever things I haven't finished for the day. So like people get emails from me at three o'clock in the morning all the time. I used to have that like, the app that like I would make it look like I was sending at eight in the morning. So I didn't look like a total zombie, <laughs> but now psycho. I don't even care. You know, I'm like, whatever. I'm a mom. Like it just is what it is. You're going to get an email for me at three. Like it'll be as composed as I can make it. Just, you know what I'm trying to say, you know? Right. 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 Well, listen, I got mad respect for people that, uh, you know, when I get an email from the middle of the night, like I know that that person's <laughs> like a savage, you know what I mean? Like they're doing what they got to do to, to keep it going. And, and that yeah. takes real discipline. Yeah. I'm like, hey, sleeps for the dead. You know, I don't even know what that feels like anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that just sort of gets to also like, and you sort of mentioned it already. I mean, the, one of the things I've always appreciated about you is that you are a real professional. Like, yes, you've got the, the mad art skills and the mad chops and you've paid your dues from an artistic perspective. But you also have a real respect and an understanding of the importance of professionalism. Totally. And being professional and disciplined in terms of your business practice, along with your arts practice. And mm -hmm. so where does that come from? I mean, first of all, like, where do you get your art skills from? Where do you get your business skills from? Is that from your parents, from your family? Are you an alien? Like, what? Totally. I'm an alien. No. So, yeah, you know. I'm Asian, so I have Asian work ethic, which my husband is like trying to figure out if he could package it in a pill and like take it every day. He's like, how do, come on, if we can manufacture this, we're gonna be multimillionaires. Totally. Um, so it's like, I didn't get 
the luxury of like, you're going to be an artist. Like my parents were like, you're going to fail. That's not a real occupation. You can't do that. So I've actually never taken an art class before. Like I have zero art credit. I've literally never taken an art class, but I've been drawing like my entire life. My mom was actually an artist, which is funny because she told me I would fail, but she actually studied art. And I think because at her time, you really, there wasn't so many options for that as an occupation as maybe there are now. And so she was trying to like, save me from heartache. And I think because she told me I couldn't do it, it was like even more of a motivation to like, oh, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to prove you wrong. So I actually have a business degree. I have an MBA. I studied business. I did it economics and finance and stuff like that. So the business side is something that I've studied and pretty fluid in. I feel very comfortable in that world. But the art side is like, as soon as I was done with my economics homework, I would be boom, painting a painting that night till three in the morning. So I've always kind of had that practice in. I've been drawing since I was a kid. And I really think like my dad to get, I used to draw on the walls at home and I would get in trouble. And so he was like, look, can you not draw on the walls? So he bought me this four by eight, huge erasable board that was in my room as a little kid. And he was like, you can draw in this, like whatever you want in this, and you could just keep it in this. And so as a little <laughs> kid, I, yeah, just off the wall, like he even tacked it into the wall for me. So it was like this really large thing. And I would stand on a chair. I'm not very tall anyway, but I was really short then. So I would stand on a chair and draw as a little kid on this big four by eight. So I feel like from very young on, they were kind of sculpting me into being the muralist I am today. But yeah, the art thing never took an art class. I really wish that I did. I've learned a lot of lessons through like, you know, I'm like, I've learned from the streets, literally like painting on the street with other painters is where I've learned most of my art skill and just failing. I was really bad at it for a long time, you know, like incredibly bad. I was the worst person in my collective by far. I just was terrible at it. And I had so much drive and hope and heart that I would work harder than everybody. I feel like that was kind of, I was fully committed. I knew I wanted to do this. And so I just like had something to prove to myself and to everybody, I guess, around me that I could do it. And so I, think I just was okay at being bad for so long that eventually I got better at it. Well, you got to get your 10,000 hours, right? And yeah. you probably passed that, but then you want your 20,000 hours and your 30,000 hours. I mean, we respect the 30,000. I mean, the 30,000 hour artist is like, come on, right? Yeah. I mean, that OG shit, yeah. but you got to pay your dues. You got to, you yeah. got to do the work, put in the work. There's no going around putting in the hard work and paying your dues. There is no getting around that. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are the few people who are, you know, at a young age, just get this fame and then they're there. Like, that's amazing. And I think that when I was younger, I used to think that like success happened that way. Like there was that breaking moment where all of a sudden, boom, you're successful. But now I realize like slow and steady is the pace. You know what I mean? Yep. Like you yep. just, everything yep. is incremental. I never have had something where it was like, boom, like a huge lift off. It's more been like, I've just been on that slow burn, slow and steady, yeah. you know, each thing kind of taking you to the next. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, we often hear these analogies about, oh, it's a marathon versus a sprint and all this. But the metaphor I've been using lately, and I'm not even a big baseball fan, but I've been using a baseball analogy because I I turned 50 this year. And so I'm looking back at my life. And what I'm realizing is that I have been a solid base hitter. Totally. Right. And you just like you're bringing in runs and you're getting on base and you're hitting that ball like that is going to also win the game. Right. Um, totally. But also, if you're trying to hit that home or you're going to strike out a couple of times, 
And so that's a really interesting analogy, I think, because a lot of times I think our culture and certainly media, if you read these magazines, they're like, oh, these three steps, read this, do these 10 things. It all perpetuates this idea of like the overnight success or some silver bullet, and there isn't. Yeah, no way. I mean, I think that people that are waiting to be discovered or waiting for that success moment that's going to take you there are just stuck waiting. Like for me, no one ever like knocks on my door and is like, oh, I got your dream project. I can't wait for you to do this. Like it's totally like build the ship while you're sailing, build the plane while you're flying, like figure it out and make it that happen. Pull together all these different things to be able to craft it into your dream. And so I feel like I've always had to be scrappy And from anything from like, I used to, to go on this tour, like I have a collective and it's called Trust Your Struggle. And one of our first tours we went on, which really was like game changing for me, we went from Mexico through Central America and we traveled for like, I think I was on the road for like six months with the group I was like for three months. And so like, I sold every piece of art that I basically had. I threw a house party. I made like five gallons of sangria and like sold it. So each little tour kind of took us to the next. I think we'd throw all these house parties for our tour across the U.S. That's actually where we made the sangria. For the first one, I think we just threw a big house party and we sold every piece of art we had. I think I painted somebody's truck. Like, you know, you just pull it together however you can to like make it happen. And that's kind of how it's always been. It's like scrappy I feel like there hasn't been that sort of thing where you're just like, it just happens for you. Like I would still be waiting. Yeah. That's Hollywood shit, you know? And and we've watched too many movies and believe too many movies and the reality is a lot, a lot harder, but it's also a lot more beautiful. I mean, boy, you're, you're so much more grateful when you're blazing your own trail and you're doing the work. Right. And And you know what what goes into it? You know how to run the show because you've done every aspect of it. Like I'm really big on failure. I'm always like, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. If you don't have that fear before you're going to bed and your project's about to launch, like you're obviously not really in the game. That's some level you got to be sweating a little bit about it because you just are trying to stretch that much further. You're trying to go that much bigger and stuff. So I feel like it's always been that way for me. And now I just kind of like I used to get really st- stressed out about it and be like, oh my God, this is so much. But now I've realized that that's actually the joy. I have to like mentally psych myself out. I don't know if I'm like overly positive or something. Like it's something I got from my dad that's like super positive. But like that moment of that stress and anxiety and working so hard and you're tired and exhausted, like that is you're on the ride and you have to enjoy that part because if you don't, then it's gone. When it's done and you think back to the memory, that moment's already done. So it's like, you got to enjoy that craziness. And now it's like, I just know that that part's crazy. So I kind of am like, I anticipate like, oh, it's about to get crazy next week or the next couple of <laughs> weeks yeah. so that you can enjoy it so that you can like have that fluidity. Well, and also, I mean, the fact is money comes and goes, right? So sometimes you're flush, sometimes you're not. And so the compensation comes a lot of times in the process. If you're not enjoying the process of your work, uh, the nature of your work, like you're probably not a happy person because, you know, if we can enjoy the nature of your work, then you probably enjoy what you're doing for a living. And the money is gravy. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you can't, like, you have to enjoy every moment. No. When you look at the overall spectrum that you do find the joy and take the time to find the joy in the moment. I did also think of something when you when you were asking about like how I built my art career as well or how I started off. Mm -hmm. When I was a little kid, my parents actually gave me photo equipment. I was like five. 
I think by seven, I had like some equipment to develop my own film. And so my parents, they're Asian. They're not like, they don't coddle you. There's no like holding your hand. So they gave me a book and it was like developing photography for beginners. And they're like, we got you the book. You should be able to figure this out. You know, like I'm seven. (laughs) So sure enough, I read the book and I developed my first, I literally taped trash bags all over the entire kitchen so that no light could get in so I could develop the film and then develop these pictures. And I'm like huffing fumes and all this stuff. You know, I'm standing on a chair again. I'm too little to be at the real sink. So I'm like developing this film and I'm super juiced. Like my parents are coming home from work, you know, and I'm thinking like, dude, I'm going to show them these photos that I did and they're going to be so proud of me and everything. So I take the photos to my dad and I'm like, dad, check it out. I developed my first film. And he looks at it. He just grabs it and he looks at it and he's like, what are you trying to say with this? Like, he's like, the lighting's off. Like, maybe this speaks to you, but like, this is your friend and maybe she's beautiful to you, but this says nothing to me. And he's like, well, you got to think about the angle, the lighting and the story. And if you can't do that, then you're really not conveying anything. And he gave it back to me. And I was like, so heartbroken. You know, I was like, oh, okay. I'm like taking down the plastic bags in the kitchen. Like, oh, damn, sorry. I just... Yeah, like I'm a failure inside, you know, let let me cry inside because I wouldn't want to show the shame on my face. So I was like, oh, damn. But honestly, because he said that, I was like, then on at seven, like, I got to think about lighting, perspective. What am I trying to say? Because if this, to me, it's saying something, but if it doesn't read to somebody who sees it right away, then it's not conveying the message. And so like, even though for years I was like wounded over it for real, I was like, oh my God, I just am so terrible at this. I should never ever try that again. I think it was really helpful just because he gave it to me straight. He wasn't like, oh, you're you're seven, so I should tell you everything you do is wonderful. He was like, what are you trying to do? Because that's not it's, it yet. It's called tough love, right? And it, these days, that kind of parenting, it, generally speaking, seems in short supply. Are you that kind of parent with your kiddo? I Are you going to be so. that kind of parent? Yeah. I think so. I mean, just in the way of like, I kind of like mess. My daughter's only one, so I can't totally yeah. mess with her yet. But I, you know, <laughs> I still do it with my nephews. My cousins are a little bit older where they're like, oh, we're going to play a game and they think they're going to win. I'm like, no, you're not going to win. You're not going to beat me because I'm actually really good at it. And they're like, no, you're like, they get so sad when they lose. I'm like, you're going to get better. But if I let you win, you're going to think you're great. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, listen, I want to go back a little bit because I just learned something a few minutes ago that I didn't know, which is the fact that you have your MBA. I mean, that's no joke, man. I didn't know you went to B school. Where'd you go? I did. I actually went to San Francisco State. I got into this program that was accelerated. So I got my first year taken off. So I did like a rapid master's because I was like a super nerd in school. So boom, they took off the first year. I had really good grades. So I got to graduate with my MBA in like a year. It should have been a year, but it ended up being a year and a half because I had this really weird circumstance with my thesis instructor. Totally other story. I'll tell you one day, <laughs> that one. But anyway, so be- yeah. Yeah, yeah. So exactly over drinks. So because of that, I graduated really quickly. But yeah, so like budgets, all the admin stuff comes very fluid. And I Mm -hmm. knew that I would never go back and like want to read that book. Like I don't want to read an accounting book even now that I'm done with it. So I'm so thankful that I learned that in school because it gave me those skills to be able to think about marketing and think about partnerships and think about the long-term plan and the strategy, all that stuff, which I know is probably the reason why I've been able to be an artist today. Well, you're right. Well, and also because you put in the work learning 
how to be an artist, right? Totally. Like, but, yeah. And so are you first generation American? Did your parents immigrate here? So no, I'm actually kind of a combination. So okay. my great grandparents came to the States. My grandparents had to go back because of the war. And so mm. my mom was born in Japan, but to American parents, but they're Japanese. And then my dad was here in the camp. So I had three generations of my family in the internment camps on the West Coast. So there's all these levels that come with it. But yes, I'm not, I'm like fourth generation. But because of that time, like we lost our language. They didn't teach us Japanese because they were fearful of the racism and prejudice against us. And I always grew up with stories of racial oppression and like what really happens. They were very big on justice isn't given. It's taken, it's deserved, it's earned. You have to work for it. When I was a little kid, when they would read me a little like bedtime stories, they would like close the book and be like, justice is something you have to fight for. You know, like they always laid that in there in these stories as a kid. I super remember sitting on my mom's bed where she would tell me stuff like that. So I really am thankful that they shared their history with me so that I could kind of be brought up already thinking like, oh, this world is screwed. We better fight for it or else we're not going to be able to keep it. Which explains a lot to me now. I didn't know that part of your family history. So now I understand way better where your sense of activism comes from. Totally. I, I considered myself an activist way before I considered myself an artist. When I was younger, I used to just say that was my title. Like I'm an organizer activist. I was really big in it for a long time. I actually... I have these like really weird things. So when I graduated from grad school, I used to work for a gentleman named Peter Camejo, who actually ran for socialist president of the U.S. in the 70s, was considered the most dangerous man by Ronald Reagan. He Isn't that for, ironic? Yeah. For, he ran for independent. It was like green independent. He ran for California governor and he also ran under Nader as his vice president. So at that time, I was his research assistant community organizer. And so I helped him like do anti-war rallies. And I was helping him do a research book on renewable energy at the time. So I used to research technologies that were around renewable energy and how the solutions were already here and have been here for many years. But it's just about the lack of funding and really like the intentional taking of they really don't want us to have them as viable resources because there isn't the ability to like charge us for the sun or charge us for the wind. So there's been this like de-incentive machine to basically not have us work towards renewable energy. So all that was kind of a lot of my early organizing when I was in my 20s and stuff to be able to kind of see that perspective and use kind of that side of my brain as well. Wow. So then at what point did you start incorporating your art into your activism? It was always separate until actually Peter asked me, he said, I want you to run for Green Party treasurer of California. I was like 22. And I was like, <laughs> wow, that sounds amazing. But honestly, like all the politicians that I've seen you roll with seem very unhappy. Like everybody's like super overworked. Like they just seem so burnt out and they just seemed really unhappy. He was actually a very happy person, but a lot of the people around him. And I just mm -hmm. felt like this is not my path. I have another way that I want to communicate these messages. And I think that I can make more change doing it through my art 
than doing it through this like political system that is kind of very rigid and stuff. So actually I told him, thank you so much. No, I appreciated so much that he thought of me and that that could even be a possibility. But I was really thankful. And at that moment, it was a real time that I made a shift. I had just like started traveling a lot with my art. And I was at that time, like really thinking of this is what I want to do. And so I just was like, this is it. I went full in. At what point did you become executive director of Water? Oh, heck, that's oh, not Estuary the Estuary Foundation. Yeah, yes, Estuary yes. Foundation. At what point did you become ED there? So that was kind of another interesting scenario. So I was working for the Mural Conservancy of LA. I started as an intern and ended up moving my way to being the interim director, executive director, in a very mm -hmm. short amount of time. And at that time, Estria Foundation, they were looking for an ED and they asked me to apply and I kind of turned them down. I was like, no, I don't think I want to move to the Bay. So they came down. We started to work on a project together. I'm like, let's just build something and see how it goes. And at that time, one of my good friends worked for the organization already. She was like, I really think you should come up and run it. I think we do good things. And so I was like, mm, OK, yeah, why not? I was only 28. I was a young ED. I said, Psh. I'll give it a shot. And I didn't realize how catalytic it would be for me because it was really the first time that you just have so much opportunity when you're put into a position, a leadership position that has real like resources behind it. And so Estria Foundation was a combination co-founding of Estria Miyashiro, who's a graffiti artist, and Jeremy Latros, who was one of the founders of Twitter. And so we had amazing backing and resources and just had the ability to take these projects and run with them. And Water Rights was our first really big series. So we did 12 cities and countries around the world talking about water as a finite resource and really just traveled talking about solutions, how you care for water and what communities were doing to in relationship to the water around them. To what extent do you think religion impacts mankind's ability to manage its natural resources? Religion's funny because I'm culturally Buddhist. I would say that I'm more culturally religious than practicing always. And I kind of consider myself agnostic atheist. So for me, I see like in a lot of ways, a religion can be the opiate of the masses. I do believe that. But at the same time, when you grow up in a non-religious household, the whole idea of religion is very foreign to you. Like I ended up going to a Catholic school, high school. and I had never heard these stories, like these stories of like Mary, Jesus, Virgin, all this stuff. So to me, this sounded like, whoa, this is like crazy. Like, what do you mean? She's <laughs> you mean metaphorically, she's a virgin. And there, my teachers were nuns and they're like, no, she really was. And I was like, well, I've never met anybody that was a virgin who had a baby. So I was just asking because I thought maybe you meant metaphorically. And they were like, no, 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 principal's office, you. So I've kind of had this really interesting scenario with religion because I grew up Buddhist non-religious like we don't have a god in Buddhism and it's really based on like karma and just the way that you walk so I feel like in some ways if it does help people have a spiritual guiding light then that's beautiful and that's powerful but if it's a way that you know or if it's like a way that people find community like I get it that's beautiful and I think that that can also be transformative for people but if that's like your only moral compass like you're not guided by a moral compass that's within you then I feel like that's where the manipulation can happen so I think that it's powerful but it just depends on how you're affected by it 
Yeah, no, I ask because capitalism gets a lot of the blame. Greed gets a lot of the blame for the exploitation of our natural resources, and rightfully so. I don't often hear religion get its due in terms of its impact, good and bad, for the use or management of our natural resources. Well, I mean, you look at how many wars were fought over religion alone. Like that is catastrophic to the environment, to the people, to infrastructures, to communities based on religion and how often that religion is is twisted in this way where I don't even know if it would like a lot of times like Catholicism and Christianity and are really twisted to be manipulated for a cause that is a human cause of one perspective versus like maybe what Jesus would really want. I mean, I think even that in Buddhism as well, there's sometimes these really ornate temples that are like made of gold and Buddhas and gold. And you're like, would he really want that? I would think not. So I definitely think that it plays a huge hand because obviously, look, when people came and colonized, missionaries were a huge part of colonization to be able to change the thinking and change how people worshipped in their community. So it's obviously been a huge, played a huge role in how it sculpted and transformed communities. But well, capitalism is it's its own uh, ball. <laughs> well, yeah. And when it comes to religion, it's like in the Bible, there's this verse about God gave us dominion over the earth, gave man dominion over the earth and the animals and the water and stuff. And I often wonder to what extent that drives this exploitative mindset, because it's like, well, there's a God. He's in control. He gave us dominion. We can do this stuff. It's going to be OK. Right. I mean, it's even to say, like, recently I've been talking to a couple of Native American advisors and they were saying, like, nature doesn't have a standalone word because it's not separate from us. It's a part of us. So it really depends on your religious perspective or your your spiritual perspective around the things around you. I feel like the Bible, it was written by people. Did they have the was it their own interpretation? Was it their translation of what they thought when they wrote it? So there could be, I just bring that up as a possibility. You don't know per se. So I think that it is about interpretation. And that also, that dominion over that thinking, I feel like has so much to do with the idea of colonization, like the superiority of people, the right of people, the whole like manifest destiny that you're better than and have the ability and right to be better than others. I really feel like that idea is so perpetrated and especially a lot of white supremacy that we see today that it's, it's so scary to think that that's a mentality that people really believe that they really believe that they're the chosen people and that they have the right over others and, you know, they won't get coronavirus or whatever. Yeah. At what point do we realize we're all earthlings with a common need for natural resources, for a common good. We're not white, black, brown. We're human beings and we're all in this together. I mean, is that so aspirational and romantic and naive to think and idealistic? Will that ever happen? I think that sometimes I have this thought around the left and right, because sometimes this is where a divide happens, especially here in the States. But I think that it's because they're really afraid of us turning that the other way where it starts to look like the pyramid and the triangle, because the majority of us, I feel like a lot of people have the same basic needs and are pretty open to similar thinking. They want health care. They want their kids to get educated. They want to live in safe communities. And so when people start to build power by class, 
I feel like that is terrifying for the very wealthy because there's so many more of us that have a similar perspective, livelihood. We're going through a lot of the same problems and to unite people around class is very terrifying. But when you split it to left and right, it sounds like there's this natural divide in the middle. Like there's the same amount of people on the left and on the right. And I don't believe that to be true. I believe that most of us are dealing with the same thing and they don't want us to look at the triangle of the masses versus a few on top. They want us to think that there's this natural divide in the middle and half of us think this way and the other half think the other. And I think that that's kind of what some of the problems with the two party system is that we think that there's only two and the people that are actually voting, it might look like they're about the same, but that's because a lot of people don't vote. A lot of people or feel like this system doesn't work for them. So they aren't even a part of it at all. And the power structure absolutely knows that there's not two equal halves, which is why they have these things like the Electoral College and other ways to suppress the vote, because they know there's way more of us than there are of them. Totally, totally. So I feel like that fear of us realizing and mobilizing around class, because then it's like you said, we are dealing with so many of the same issues, violence in our community, lack of resources, access to health care, you know, access to a livable wage. All these things are things that that most of us believe in and fight for, but they don't want us to see that commonality. Well, and it's, it's also this idea of dignity and self-respect my opinion, but I feel like most people in this world, if not everyone, basically wants dignity and self-respect. And, you know, maybe culturally how you get dignity or self-respect might be relative to your culture or to your country or wherever you are. But Mm -hmm. in this country anyway, as I look at 2020 and I look at everything we're grappling with, I just see people that are hurting and are in pain. And the reason they're hurting and in pain, and the reason they're acting out in however the way they might be acting out is because they're hurting and they're in pain. And why are they hurting and they're in pain? Because they don't have dignity and self-respect. And I mean, they might have self-respect, but it's hard for them to get dignity because maybe they can't feed their kids or pay their rent. Right. I feel like the system has been set up in a way for not in the benefit of everyday working people and not in the benefit of the majority. So I think a lot of people, like they're looking for respect within our structure and that is what's lacking. Like people might have their own sense of pride and and respect for for themselves but i feel like they're missing the respect within our system to see us as all dignified people and to that we all have the right to live for happiness or then we all have the, the right to thrive mm-hmm. because the rich want to be that much richer so what's the problem is capitalism the problem or are people the problem in other words if people had a better I, sense of morals and ethics and values could capitalism be better I've been really trying to think of the post-capitalist society. So Mm -hmm. I think that capitalism was a stepping stone. I don't want to look at it as the end-all be-all. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think that it's got it all right. There's some goods about it, and there's some very strong weaknesses. And a lot of it is within the equitable distribution of resources and access. So I think that I've been really trying to think of what's post-capitalist or how we can shift to a new system and shift to new transform transformations within our system to be able to allow for more people to thrive. So I'm pretty positive. I don't really think that people are inherently bad. I think that the there are very bad people who really only care about their inner circle and they don't even see us. They did like, oh, our reality doesn't even affect them. They don't even know. Like they have jokes, like if Bill Gates woke up with Oprah's money, he'd shoot himself, you know, like it's <laughs> like they're so wealthy. <laughs> You know, I've never like heard they that. 
Yeah, like they don't even know, you know, that like they would totally they, they have no idea what it looks like to wake up and look at your bank statement and be like, gosh, I don't have enough. To, how am I going to pay rent this month? I don't have enough to really eat that much with. They don't know what it feels like to struggle. They've never struggled in the same way that we have. And so I think that because of that, it's not even in their frame of reference. So what does a post-capitalistic economic model look like? To me, I think we really should look at local economies and really look around where is like your local watershed, your local water supply and how people locally can build together. Because I feel like we need more regional responses to these systems and how we interact with them. And then also I've been really thinking about and talking to folks. I've been working with a team at an organization called Movement Generations. They do a lot of environmental activism. They're just really on the forefront. And so we've been talking about remembering forward, remembering into the future. It's like we need to think back at how people used to work in conjunction and in harmony with the land and then use that as a model to move forward. And I think that that's really what I've been looking at more so is just thinking of a lot of these things have been solved for a long time. We lived in harmony with the land. What does that look like and how do we adapt? Like, how do we still have some of the modern conveniences that we like? Like, I like having electricity in my house. It's pretty cool. So, like, how do I still keep that like with solar panels? Or is there enough wind in my area to be able to have those sorts of solutions without having to be reliant on like this petroleum based society or go to nuclear, which I'm also don't think is green at all. With population growth such as it is, how much hope can we have that we can get ahead of exploiting our limited natural resources as sort of population grows? And I, I know some countries are, are getting older. While some countries are having a baby boom, um, right. what are we now at 8 billion on the planet? Yeah, I think it has to do with your footprint on the planet. Like if everybody lives like people in the U.S., no, there's not enough. We need way more planets. But if you live more in harmony with the planet and you aren't so consumer based, then there is a lot of possibility to sustain of this population growth. We throw away food all the time. Think of everything that spoils on our grocery stores that they also feel like they can't give away because they don't want to be liable for it. So they just throw it away. You know, I've heard stories about that from grocery stores all over. And so really, you think we're producing enough. There is enough on this planet for us to all live on. But we can't at our size footprint. We can't consume at the same level. And therein lies the problem with capitalism, which is all based on consumption. Yeah. Also, like if there were a real infrastructure for renewable energy, like the solutions are here. That's another thing with climate change. I feel like the people are like, it seems so out there, like it's in the future. Well, it's right now. And like we're already feeling it. We all know that. But the solutions are also already here. When Peter and I would talk about it, we used to say, like, we're actually in the transition. And this was like, I don't know, 20 or so years ago. We would say, like, we're living through this transition right now. And it's like the old system is fighting to keep their way with petroleum-based society and this new renewable energy. If we supported renewable energy, then there are totally new possibilities, you know, mm -hmm. because it, it allows for us to work in harmony with the environment and with nature. We're not extracting the oil. We're keeping it in the ground. We're not fracking. We're not doing all these sorts of right. um, extraction-based economies. So I think that that allows for new potential where we still can have a lot of the things that we like and feel our comforts, but at the same time, do it in a more renewable way. And I think there's also a myth around like that it's so expensive, you know, oh, it's so expensive. Well, it's because there isn't government support for it. 
when you think about we've gone to wars for oil, that is expensive. Look at how much we spend in the military. We have gone to wars for oil. That is in some ways in the economics terms, that's a subsidy. That is a support for that system to thrive and flourish and be cheap. So oil is only cheap because we've done these horrific things to get it. Like let's not even talk about the moral implications of what has happened. And because of that, I feel like if we did move and support with real government spending, like things like the Green New Deal, then it does become accessible for us. So the solutions you know, are here. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about what you're saying is you said earlier, talking about thinking locally, right? There's that old saying about all politics are local. Well, to your point, many of these solutions are local, right? Like, because like part of the problem is it's, it shouldn't be a cookie cutter approach. One size does not fit all, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because I think a lot of, not to bring for-profit companies into this, but I think a lot of the biggest companies out in the world are starting to realize like, oh, if they're going to be successful, they need to think about the local culture and the regional culture and be relevant within that eco. And well, that part of that proves on a certain level, right? Like if you're disrespectful of, of how a community is living, or if you're trying to shove something down their throat, you know, it's probably set up to fail versus right. if you empower those communities to solve these problems in a culturally sensitive, relevant way um, and innovate for themselves, you'd get a lot of different solutions, but they would all be sustainable because they're all viable and sort of designed within their very unique constraints. Totally. I mean, I think that's why it's so important because it's not cookie cutter, because then people have the ability to know what they need in their own space. And I really feel like that has a lot to do with the idea of self-determination. It's like mm -hmm. you have the ability to choose for yourself. I feel like we are much more intelligent than people give us the acknowledgement for and to allow people to step up and be leaders in their own community, I think, is the next move forward. Well, part of the, the word we haven't used here one word we could use in this context is the word innovation. Mm -hmm. We're such hypocrites, right? Because our country and, and Wall Street, they wanted to praise innovation, but not really, right? Mm -hmm. Because to really be innovative would mean to kill our babies, right? Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is legacy systems would have to go. Mm -hmm. And special interests have such a, a stranglehold and money, you know, have so many people in their pockets that it is true. It stifles innovation. Let's be real. Totally. I mean, it stifles it. It crushes it intentionally. Yeah. They don't want things to change. They want to have their wealth. They want to have the, us being reliant on this petroleum system. So, yeah, I, I feel you. I think that there's a lot that like that's why I feel like this time is so exciting because things need to change. This is the time. It has to. We don't have very much time left before huge, catastrophic dire circumstances are going to continue to happen, like we're seeing today with the fires. I mean, I was thinking about this. If somebody made this into a sci-fi film, the things are going on right now, I would have been like, can they make it more plausible? Like, come on, you got to at least make it semi-believable. But things like, what was it, like the dry lightning storm. If I would have heard that in a movie, the dry lightning storm, like, oh, come on. They, you know, you know, or like the slow hurricane. What? Like, it just sounds so crazy. But these are real. These are real things that are happening now that didn't even seem plausible before. So like, yeah, it's right in our face. Well, and that's the danger, right? Because Mother Nature, we don't have a fucking chance against Mother Nature, you no. know? And as soon as you sort of open Pandora's box, you have no idea what's coming at you. 
And it's our doing because we sort of created these conditions whereby these unimaginable things can happen. You can't predict them because you never don't even know they exist. And here suddenly they are. And, and I hear you, man. I mean, it is like if this was in a movie, we'd walk out because it's so ridiculous. Yeah, I'd be like, <laughs> come on, that was a stretch. That was a stretch. But really, it's like that's our reality. And when I first started reading about climate change, which is probably about 20 years ago, I started to really start to dig into this stuff. and. I was freaked out when I first started because I'm like, whoa, sound the alarms, like sound the alarms, we're going down the wrong path. And for a while, I felt like I couldn't sleep because of it. But I really feel like it's caught up to us. It's now. And we are all seeing the effects from the orange sky we just talked about the other day, orange sky up north, like it's mm -hmm. undeniable. It's every day. I was in Ecuador the last couple of years. I had lived down there and I was there for the 7.8 earthquake. That was horrendous. It was humongous. 70% of the infrastructure on the coast collapsed. And to see how strong Mother Earth is, that we just, if we don't work in harmony with her, we are screwed because she will continue on. If we want to be around for that, then we need to make a change. 100%. 100%. It is an enormous challenge. And I can understand. Well, what's interesting, I mean, to what extent does the power structure and the establishment want us to feel apathetic, right? Because if we feel apathetic, chances are we're not going to be protesting and we're not going to be trying to make change and, the, you know, the status quo can continue. Mm -hmm. What I love so much about your platform and everything you're doing, whether it's the land of we or what you do in Ecuador, or what you've done in Ecuador and which is what you do with your work generally, is that you're showing people that it is about taking responsibility and that there is hope for us if we start to act. And that the time is now, literally the planet is on fire. As we speak, our planet is burning. Right, our planet's burning, our state's burning from the smoke clouds, our pollution is getting terrible from the, like that, the orange sky, the slow hurricanes, like what else do you need? You know, <laughs> I mean, what else do you need to see? Because this is pretty crazy. If you're not freaked out right now, then you're totally not paying attention. So yeah, I, I feel like it's the time. We don't have a choice. And it's really important to be hopeful because it's so easy to be complacent and dire. You know, it's so easy for us to fall into this sort of depression of our moment. And I think that, that that's what kind of is the role of the artist. I heard this amazing quote once that said, you know, the role of the artist is to remember where we've been, where we're going and provide hope along the way. And I really feel like that's our responsibility for people who are artists, who are creative. If we can remind people the knowledge that we had, we're storytellers, we're history keepers. If we can remind them of these gems that have already been learned and reshare them so it's never forgotten. And then we provide hope in these times of crisis where everybody feels like they don't want to get out of bed and they just want to wear sweats, which I get. I do too. But in these times, if we can remind people that there's so much amazing work can be done. And if we overcome this moment, it will be a major victory written about in the history books. If they let us write about it in the history books, it'll be written about in the history books, you know? So I think it really is a remarkable time. Well, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've always thought of artists as being the truth tellers at their best, right? Artists are speaking truth to power because artists are trained to see things we can't see. Artists are trained to critique and see and look at things critically. And they don't have any financial interest in not telling the truth. So many companies, government, whatever, they completely can't tell the truth because it's not in their interest to tell the truth. Because if they told the truth, the people would riot and start revolting. And But artists can tell the truth and speak truth to power. And so that's such a responsibility 
solemn, sacred responsibility. And if not artists, then who? No one else is going to do it. I mean, maybe men of the cloth, women of the cloth, perhaps religious leaders, what have you. But really, even then, they have a dogma that a lot of times that artists don't have. And, you know, so artists have the power to be able to shine a light. And we know that sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? So if we can shine the light and start exposing these things, maybe we can start changing things for the better. Now, I want to point out that one of the reasons that we're here today is your fantastic project, The Land of We, Not Real Art, is a sponsor. Crew West is a sponsor. We're so grateful to be in this project with you. When I learned about it, I knew we wanted to be a part of it and support it. For our listeners' sake, tell us about this project and what you're hoping to achieve and the many moving parts, because this is a big project that's gonna take many months, have many aspects to it, a lot of moving parts. So please tell us about this important work you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you aboard. I really honor your knowledge and the strategy that you've given me. So thank you so much. You're not just a podcaster, you're very multifaceted as a marketing guru. So I'm super thankful to have you on board. And the Land of We is, it's a project about biocultural diversity and it's using art as a way to talk about climate change and this moment in time where the things that are super, like things like diversity and culture, as well as intergenerational love and support are things that aren't really highlighted in our mainstream right now. And we see that all the time cultures, they try and divide us. And I feel like more and more people are really working to build solidarity movements. And I think that that's kind of what we're trying to highlight. That as well as this eminent climate disaster that we're in, it's really a way to highlight solutions and think about these problems at a larger scale and try and provide solutions for hope and highlight real things that people are doing on the ground. So some of the things that we've been looking at are like how people farm in different ways and how people fish in different ways as well. So one of the designs that I'm working on right now is talking about the henyo in in Korea. There are women that they collect fish and abalone and animals from the sea, but they all fish by hand. And so they've done it in a way that's been working with the environment. They have seasons that they fish and farm and other seasons that they let flourish. They have rules around what to collect, how big it has to be and what not to collect so that they always think of it in ways that it's around for the future generations. And that's the sort of solution that I really want to highlight in this project is to talk about real things that people have done over the years and look at that as a way could that model what we can do moving forward. So it's really using art and creativity to talk about these larger things. And I think originally I started by like, it was like one of the instances where like, a gorilla was killed and it was like terrible. You know, everybody on the, the internet exploded, this poor gorilla. But at the same time, there was like all these Black Lives Matter tragedies happening and there there was explosions, but it wasn't the same. And it was freaking me out because I'm like, how do people care more about an, an animal than they do about people that are suffering right now? And that's all over the world. People just have a little shifted priorities. So I felt like, man, if I could talk about this through like the perspective of animals, maybe people will care more. So I started to kind of dive into this thinking around like using animals in a very humanistic way to then talk about climate change or to open up a larger conversation around that. And then also talk about these stories of like intergenerational knowledge. Like I have all these elder lady crushes. 
it's like super big to me to have mentors along the way and so i love to highlight elder women it's just like something that i'm a huge fan of and so I think that a lot of a lot of the things that I like to push forward are the beauty that comes with wisdom, the beauty that comes with gathering this all these experiences over time. In some of like Asian culture, as you get older, people get really excited about becoming an elder because then it's I mean, not only can like their younger generations not check you like we have to be super respectful of them all the time so they could say crazy things. And it's like, yeah, that's grandma. You know, it's fine. You just let it go. But at the same time, people come to you for your knowledge and wisdom. You're not like shunned away in the back corner. People go to you to ask their advice. And I think that that's really huge that sometimes doesn't get highlighted as a beautiful thing with a lot of cultures. And so that's kind of the sort of things that I like to shine light on. It's that beauty that comes with wisdom and then how we can work in harmony with the environment. So it's going to be a series of murals. There's going to be billboards. There's going to be online media created. I have amazing partners, Nabriel R and Crew West, working with Sugar Press, amazing print company. They've, they, I've been working with them for years. They're wonderful. And Martin also working movement generations. They're on the ground. They're organizers. They're environmental justice forefronts. They do trainings. They have community gardens and they actually have a house where they live communally with basically it's like off the grid. It's an amazing example of how people can live and still have comforts of home. And that is actually a really beautiful example of how people are thriving during the pandemic because they're not isolated. You know, they still cook as a as a collective. They still garden together. They don't feel like they are isolated from their community. So I feel like these are all they're great examples for how we can move forward. And I think by putting forth those examples, it helps people to not feel scared because it's easy to be scared. But by being able to show that we do have these solutions at our hands or just right in front of us, that we know that we can make the change. It's funny. I mean, I, I there was a time in my life when I lived in a more rustic kind of lifestyle. And when I think back on that, I was healthy as a horse, so to speak. I was lean and mean <laughs> and I was fit and I was happy. I, my mental health was as good, if not better than even my physical health, because when you're living closer to the earth, right? It is a more active lifestyle. You're moving, you're lifting, you're bending, you're carrying. And so that obviously makes you healthier because you're getting more exercise, you're burning calories, but it also helps you mentally because you're moving and you're breathing and you're doing something that matters. And, you know, it's really interesting because we become so disconnected. Our modern life modernity has forces us to become so disconnected from the earth that I really feel like so many of our modern problems, whether it's obesity or mental health, ADHD, HD, or ADD for kids, any number of things, like we become disconnected from the earth and therefore we are suffering. It's been toxic for our, our species. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways we've had a spiritual disconnection with the earth. Like they forget that it's alive. It's alive and we're living on this living being in essence. And so I think part of the inspiration also that I pulled from to build out this project was, you know, I lived in Ecuador for a few years. I spent time in the cloud forest. I spent spent time in the Amazon. I'd go very often down by the Galapagos. I'd actually go, they call it poor man's Galapagos. Um, and so I could <laughs> snorkel and be with yeah. the lush the lush life underwater and i spent a lot of time like watching the whales come in the seasons and and just really exploring what it feels like to be around lush nature because obviously and i'm in la now you don't have that but you don't have it in the same way and 
I think that I try and pull from that inspiration to put into my art now, because I feel like if one thing that art has the ability to do, it's not only just to educate and, and be hopeful, but it's like you can pierce people in their soul. If you do it right, like a song that just makes you cry or painting that you see that brings tears or you're just like you get immersed in it, you go into it. It has the ability to pierce your soul like nothing else does. That's why I feel like is like what we're trying to do. We're trying to not only share these stories, but we're trying to touch you in a way that you feel something. And that speaks to me because, I mean, quite frankly, we sort of we're talking about religion earlier. It's like for me personally, like my church is nature. Like I love when I go camping, when I go hiking, like that's when I commune with whatever higher power there might be, because I do believe that I'm part of this natural system, this thing called nature, and I'm not above it or better than it or here to dominate it. I'm a part of it and it feeds my soul and, you know, and everybody different. I, I don't, but I feel like if more people can appear and appreciate what nature can bring, you know, maybe we'll have more hope. Now, speak to me a little bit specifically about these murals. You Mm -hmm. have three murals coming up, Mm -hmm. or how many murals do you have as part of this program? I am going to start it off with three. So I'm in phase one of the project. I have all these plans for phase two, but phase one is at Mm -hmm. least three murals, a series of billboards, and then online kind of education that I'm going to be pushing out through my social media as well. And that's going to be kind of a combination of education around some of the solutions that are happening, as well as trying to highlight some of the folks that are doing amazing work on the ground. Oh, that's great. Now, where's your first mural going to happen? Do you know? Yeah. So my first mural is going to be in K-Town. I'm going to start it in the next couple of weeks. Let me stop you. Let me stop you. For our listeners who are around the world, (laughs) (laughs) for our global listening audience, (laughs) K-Town is where exactly? It's Koreatown. It's Koreatown. It's just west of downtown LA. It's an ethnic enclave that used to be very Korean and now is actually very multicultural. They actually have a large Central American population now. And I'm working in partnership with a Korean family as well as some community organizers to bring this mural to life. And it is really to celebrate some of Korean culture, but also some of the solutions that we spoke about. Oh, that's great. And do you have a sense, I know these things are moving targets sometimes in terms of when exactly you can start production. Certainly we're living in a COVID age, which is complicating things. Like when do you anticipate being able to start production on that mural? I think I'm going to start in the next almost like 10 days, two weeks, pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And then I hope to be done with it by the end of the month. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty quick. Like there's a lot of moving parts going on right now. And, you know, I, I would say too, For artists that do do community-based work, it is a challenge. You are bringing together so many different thoughts and interests and people that want things. And I'm sure anybody that's worked with a client, you always work with like 10 different, you know, all these different ideas that somehow you're supposed to magically put it all together and make something that's amazing. So it, it has its own massaging that has to happen. And I feel like that's actually the art form in a lot of ways. So yes, it's been a long time coming. 
I've been working on it for months. I actually now through my process, I, I set a long time aside for research and development just to get everything off the ground, um, to line up these partnerships. But I've been working with amazing people on another project that I've been working on. I have an advisor, Julia Bulgany. She's Native American Tongva, and she's been helping me just guide some work that would be relevant to the local community here in LA and to also highlight, she has a project to be visible. It's really to highlight that Tongva people are still here and a part of our community and we're on Tongva land. And so I've really want to be able to highlight many cultures in the project, but this is phase one. Well, you know, one of the things that I love about your project is the name, the land of we, because we are in this together. We are on this planet together. And there's so much talk about it's rhetoric, it's propaganda, who knows if anybody's sincere, but politicians like to talk about the infrastructure. Oh, we need new infrastructure. We need this out of the other. I mean, the bottom line is the only infrastructure that matters is us. We are the infrastructure, you, me, our communities. And I think that the name of your project, The Land of We, is a great reminder of exactly that. I mean, we are the glue that really holds this stuff together. And if we don't start locking arms and talking, you know, talking first, right? And getting to know each other and trying to work together to address some of these issues. That's going to be the first step. And as you know, we've done a few public murals over the years ourselves, and you're absolutely right. Nothing's, there are a few things that are more powerful than a public mural to bring a bunch of disparate stakeholders together and try to come to some common ground. It's, 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 uh, it's a great challenge. Yeah, it's a magical moment in itself. But yeah, I think it actually started as I wrote a fairy tale about the idea of the land of we. And it kind of goes into like the villain character is this villain I. And it's basically when you get it's a virus, which is really ironic, but it's a virus. And when you get the virus I, you lose your foresight and you can no longer see beyond yourself. And so that was kind of this narrative tale that I wrote. And it was for my first solo exhibition that I did in East LA. And I did a whole series of paintings around it and painted a mural highlighting Ophelia Esparza, who's an altar maker, master altar maker that runs the gallery and the center. Mm -hmm. And she's an elder and she's amazing and powerful. And I got to paint this huge mural of her. And so Mm -hmm. like that mural, I dreamt about it before I painted it. And like the land of we, I dreamt about it before I manifested it. I think that I pull a lot from my dreams and it was yeah. just a way that I could try and bring it all together. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, Aaron Yoshi, I am so grateful that we've had time to talk about this very important project. Will you make me a promise? Would you be down to come back and talk more as this unfolds? Because I know this project's going to be ongoing for many months. Absolutely. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me today. And anytime I'm down, it's way fun hanging out with you. Right on. Well, that's great to hear because I love hanging out with you too. Now, before we go though, where can our listeners support your project? Where can they find you online? Can they donate? How can they help you realize this important work? So they can find me online at AaronYoshi.com. I'm also on all social medias at Aaron Yoshi. Currently, I don't have a donation button on my website, but I do have art for sale and affordable merchandise to support the project and myself. So that's a way that you could support me and get something back from it. You know, not to riff off the capitalist model of more consumerism. <laughs> hey, but. 
it's called it's called self reliance is what it's yeah. called. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's supporting independent entrepreneurs. That's right. That's right. Yeah, these women are handmade. Led, yeah. Women yes, of color yes. owned and yes. led. <laughs> these are limited edition handmade objects, many of them, right? Like you're not mass producing a bunch of you know stuff. But that's interesting that you don't have yet anyway, have a way for people to donate to the project. How are you? It sounds like you must have some wonderful underwriters and sponsors, if you don't mind me asking, as I know our listeners would love to better understand how projects like this get funded, because I'm guessing there are other people out there trying to do other similar kinds of projects. As a activist, uh, how did you fund this project? Activist artist, how did you fund it? So I pitched it to a foundation and got funded. So part of my business brain has worked for many years in the foundation world to develop a reputation and a portfolio of projects. And so I write grants and I pitch projects and I pitch for sponsors and everything before I build projects out. So that's actually how I did it. And I would say, if you ever do your Not Real Art conference and you want me to teach how to do sponsorships and grant writing and stuff. I do train people and I do do workshops on it. So I love sharing this information because I believe in like surplus. I don't try and hoard this knowledge at all. And I share like my best tips and tricks over the years to help other people be able to be more sustainable. Well, thank you for that. And I absolutely will take you up on it for sure. And we'll talk more about that offline because we are going to do the conference again. The, the real question is exactly when because of the COVID age. But in the meantime, we want to be doing, I think we want to be doing like monthly webinars. We're all tired of Zoom, but that's all we got for the time being. So like once a month, let's do an hour, 90 minutes kind of webinar where an expert like you comes and you and I talk and we talk about this issue and people can listen and learn because the arts, one of the things that is, I think, a fact of life for artists is that they're alone, they're in a silo. They don't get an opportunity to share knowledge a lot of times. And so part of what we try to do with everything we're doing is I call them water cooler moments, trying to bring people together to talk and share and realize, oh, you're not alone. Everybody's fighting the same battles. And some people have the answers for you. You have answers for other people. And if we could just get people talking we can help each other. Yeah, absolutely. I very much believe in like open source knowledge sharing. So I learned because someone was kind enough to teach me. And so I feel like it's my responsibility to pass it on to others. But yeah, it's, it is a skill and it's a language. You have to learn how to decode the language and to speak the language. And once you learn that, like if you could write an email, you can write a grant. It's just about knowing the formula and knowing the tips of the trade to be able to really get your foot in the door. So yes, anytime I'm more than willing to share what I've learned, all my failures, I'll open up the history of failure so that people can can learn from what I've learned over the years. Fantastic. Aaron Yoshi, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough, out.